Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again today. Thank you so much for tuning in every week and for your kind words that you have shared with us via email and uh, through Facebook by going to our public profile. Uh, my personal uh, friends on Facebook, I've reached my limit, so you have to go to my public profile, which is Lynn Hiles Ministries. But we thank you for those kind words that you've shared with us. Let me say to you that if you've missed any of the programs, we are now filming uh, chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. We've taught this for over 100 weeks now on the TV program, but the good news is you can go back and watch them uh, on uh, YouTube, or you can go back to iTunes and download the audio portions of this series and go through them uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse and see why we believe what we believe. I think we brought a very compelling argument. I've studied uh, every view there is, I think, and for me this is the one I've become most satisfied with that rings true in my spirit, and uh, I know it may be stretching a lot of you in a different view that you've had perhaps, but when you see like eminence, uh, for instance, eminence scriptures like these things, Revelation 1 says, are about to shortly come to pass. Uh, when you see Jesus declare Matthew 24, all of these things, Matthew 23, Matthew 23 and 24, all these things will come upon this generation. You will not have finished going through the cities of Jerusalem until the Son of Man be come. There are some of you standing here that will not taste death till you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Uh, Revelation, the latter part says, uh, don't seal up the words of the vision of this prophecy for the time is at hand. He was saying all of those time texts to a first century group of people who understood the prophetic word of Jesus. I think we've covered the Olivet Discourse very well in showing you that, uh, that, that the, the, the prophetic word that God or that Jesus was giving was when he came up out, uh, first of all, he's standing on the Mount of Olives and he looks across and he sees Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and you that killed the prophets, how oft I would have gathered you under my feathers as a hen doth gather her chicks, but you would not. Therefore, your house is left to you desolate. The context of that Olivet Discourse and Matthew 23 and 24 is he's speaking to Jerusalem and he's saying to them, I wanted to gather you under my feathers. The only place God has feathers in the scripture is on the wings of the cherubim. So what would be under the wings would be a mercy seat. And, and Jesus is saying, I've done everything I can to give you mercy, but you would not. Therefore, your house is left to you desolate. And you, you especially see, you know, in the gospels there where he would say to them, uh, let me see if I've got it here uh, somewhere closely. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 39 says, And woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And you say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. In other words, fill up the cup of wrath because it's just about full and it's about to be poured out. That's what you see being poured out in these vials of wrath in the book of Revelation. The cup had finally reached its overflow point and God said enough is enough and judgment was about to come upon them. 
Wherefore you are witnesses to yourself that your children of them which killed the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Think about that. That upon you will come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechiah, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Jesus talking to his contemporaries in that generation. He's saying, fill up the cup, because once the cup of wrath is full, God will pour it out, and it will be the days of vengeance that all things might be fulfilled. I think it is incredibly interesting then when you read this, and you read uh, Revelation 17, that one of the key recognizable uh, things concerning who this harlot or who this whore is, is that in her was found the blood of all the martyrs. Uh, you know, she had, number one, she was uh, arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold, precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. If you remember right, last week out of Ezekiel, I believe it is, uh, I believe it is chapter, uh, let me find it here real quickly, but it's in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel, I believe it is chapter 16, that it talks about, yeah, let's see here. Uh, it talks about her whoredoms and her harlotries, and uh, it tells you that she, uh, it's Ezekiel chapter 16, go read that whole chapter, that she's got, you know, that she's got uh, vessels of gold, vessels of silver, and she's got uh, images that she's made, that she's got uh, uh, garments of embroidery uh, to cover her. She's per perfumed. Exact wording almost that you read in the book of um, uh, Revelation chapter 17. I'll just read a few verses from for uh, chapter 16, book of Exodus, verse 15. And thou dost tr uh, trust in thy beauty, and goest to whoring because of thy renown, and dost pour out thy whoredoms on every passersby to him it is. And thou dost take of thy garments, and dost make to thee spotted high places, and dost go whoring upon them. They are not coming in, nor shall it be. And thou dost take thy beauteous vessels of my gold and my silver that I gave thee, and dost make the images of a male, and dost go whoring with them, and dost take thy garments of embroidery, and thou dost cover them with my oil and with thy perfume thou hast set before them. Uh, and thou dost take thy sons and daughters whom thou uh, hast born to me and dost sacrifice to them for food. Is it a little thing because of thy whoredoms? And so, you know, you see the same wording over here when you see that this woman has a, she's carried by a scarlet-collared beast, and this scarlet-collared beast, we'll get into it before we quit today or in the next couple segments, but this scarlet-collared beast is this Roman beast that we've shared with you all through the Scripture, all the way up through there, who gets its power from the dragon. But she is in such covenant and, and uh, if you will, she's in bed with the political system of Rome and gets her power from that, commits fornication with all of their systems and their idolatries and, and uh, has literally polluted and made abominable the house of God. And uh, she's, she's, she's on her scholar-colored beast, 
having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet collar and decked with gold, precious stones, pearls, having a cup in her hand full of abominations of the filthiness of her fornication. You can see the exact comparison with that with Ezekiel 16. She had vessels and garments and she's perfumed. And uh, upon her head in chapter 17 of Revelation was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Can you see this is a comparison with what I read out of Matthew 23, that upon you will come the blood of all the martyrs. Again, we see a powerful comparison that this harlot of Revelation chapter 17 is the present day Jerusalem that was in that particular day that God was about to strip naked and judge uh, and to make her, uh, make her naked and strip her and to give her blood to drink because she had drank the blood of all the martyrs. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not shall send out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not yet is. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, I did put in my notes. Let me see if I can find them very quickly. But I did put in my notes uh, who these uh, seven mountains were. I found them actually in, uh, in uh, Wikipedia. Let me see if I can find them very quickly here. Let me see. Sometimes it's not as quick to find them as them. The seven mountains uh, that the woman sets, uh, Revelation 17, verse 9, refer to Jerusalem, not Rome. The seven mountains upon which the woman, uh, Jerusalem, was built are, number one, Mount Zion. That's the first mountain. Number two, Mount Ophel. That's the second mountain. Mount Moriah, that's the third mountain. Mount Bezitha, that's the fourth mountain. Mount Acrea. A-C-R-A, that's the fifth mountain. Mount Garib, G-A-R-E-B, and Mount Goeth, that's seven mountains upon which this woman sat. And uh, then it goes on to say then that, uh, so those are the seven mountains, so it fits perfectly again with the geography of that day, being apostate Jerusalem, apostate Israel. I know I'm being meticulous, but I, I want to lay the reasoning why I believe this great harlot was apostate Israel and apostate Jerusalem. And this great city that weakened the nations that God was now judging in 70 AD when he would bring these armies upon her to strip her naked and bare and to judge this great harlot. But see, as soon as this great harlot is judged and removed, the next chapter in Revelation is going to say, Hallelujah. Now has come salvation, and the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. God divorced, God divorced this city and was about to marry a new Jerusalem. The fact, listen, the fact that there's a new Jerusalem tells you there's an old one. The fact that there's a new covenant tells you there's an old one. So uh, the old one is now called Babylon, the harlot. God gave her a writing of divorcement. I shared that with you in the last segment, and I showed you out of Jeremiah chapter 3, I believe it was verse 1, that once you divorced this woman, and she went away from you, and went with other lovers, and then tried to come back, it would be an abomination to remarry her. It would make the land polluted. So God is not going to remarry this harlot. He's marrying a new Jerusalem. 
uh, we, we got to grasp that. It is a new Jerusalem. You know, uh, one of the things that I have been sharing a great deal out of the book of Hebrews, and I may get to this more uh, as we go on into the bride, the lamb's wife, but out of the book of Hebrews, he says, for you did not come, Hebrews chapter 12, he said, for you did not come to the mount that might be touched. You didn't come to blackness and darkness, fear and trembling, and the voice of words. You didn't come to a God who says, stay away, or a God who says, if you touch the edge of the mountain, you're going to be thrust through with the dart. Moses said, so uh, exceedingly uh, terrible was the sight that he said, I exceedingly fear and quake. He said, you did not come to this mountain. Now, that mountain was Old Covenant, Mount Sinai. But the thing that really gripped me, that really began to help me understand some things, is he said, you did not come to the mount that might be touched. In other words, he's writing the book of Hebrews there to Hebrews. How do you know? Because that's the title of the book. He's writing to literal Hebrews who were being tempted to go back under Judaism. They're 37 years into the new covenant, and they are being persecuted. They are being, having their goods stolen. Uh, they, they are no longer uh, considered under, uh, if you will, the protection of the Mosaic Covenant to the Romans who had literally a, uh, a covenant agreement that they were forced to do idol worship because uh, that their, their law said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So they had some kind of protection, but when they became believers, they were considered to be an illegal, uh, an illegal religion, and they could not, uh, they're not under the protection any longer. So they're suffering the spoiling of their goods. They're losing their loved ones in the arenas. They're being kicked out of their synagogues, <clears throat> and they want to go back. They want to go back to Judaism. Matter of fact, when I see the scripture that says, you know, in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews 10, if you sin willfully, once you've been enlightened and you've tasted the power of the age to come, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. He wasn't talking about if you have sinned since you got saved and you did something bad. What he's talking about there is if you miss the mark, that's what sin means, hamartia, to miss the mark. If you miss the mark of this new covenant, once you've tasted the power of the age to come, once you've tasted the heavenly gift, once you've been enlightened of the revelation of this new covenant, and then you go back under Judaism on purpose, and you go back to synagogue, and you go back to animal sacrifice, and you go back to worshiping in that old covenant way, he says there remains no more sacrifice for sin. That doesn't mean that if you sinned on purpose since you've been saved that you can't ever be saved. If that's the case, all of us are lost. What he's saying is if you go back up under Judaism and you miss the mark of the new covenant on purpose, you go back to offering bulls and goat blood, what you're saying is that the blood of Jesus is not enough. And you're going to have to walk back over the blood of Jesus in order to go back to offering the blood of sacrifices. And you're going to have to say that the blood of Jesus was not enough. And you're going to do despite to the spirit of grace. And Paul said, if you do that, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath against the day of judgment, which came within three and a half years of him writing the book of Hebrews when he said, a certain fearful looking for a fire indignation which shall try their enemies. So that judgment came upon people who were going back to Judaism. To me, I am concerned about the American church because we wanna, we're trying to get Christians to go back to Judaism. We're trying to make Jewish people out of them rather than Christians. So we go back to the rituals and all the things of the Old Covenant, even to the point where some people's eschatology ends with a restored temple and the blood of a red heifer doing more than the blood of Jesus ever did. Something's wrong with this picture, folks. But Paul says, but I'm convinced better things of you, that we are not of them who draw back to perdition. In other words, we're not going back. I'm not going back under the law. But one of the main things that I caught really, that God really worked in my spirit concerning this out of 
Hebrews 12 is you've not come to the mouth that can be touched. So they were still looking for, what they were looking for was the tangibleness. They still wanted to smell the smell of the burning sacrifices. They still wanted the sights and sounds of the pomp and ceremony of the Levitical priesthood as they would do their processions on certain feast days. They were still looking for a tangible, physical tabernacle. They were looking for something you could touch. They were looking for a physical, uh, uh, you know, uh, a tangible, touchable mount that shook, that touched, and that burned with fire. But God said to them, listen, you didn't come to the mount that can be touched. And the whole book of Hebrews is about transitioning from that which is visible to that which is invisible and that which is touchable to that which doesn't seem like in the natural it's touchable. In other words, you've come to a better blood. You're not, you're not offering the blood of bulls and goats. So that's not something you're touching any longer. You're not bringing a sheep to church every week. You've come to a better tabernacle because the temple and the tabernacle that used to be a physical building has now become a people. Uh, as we get into the latter parts of the book of Revelation, you're going to see, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Revelation 21 says it like this in the uh, Message Bible, look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He's made his home with men. So we moved out of that physical building and having to make a, if you will, a pilgrimage to a holy land to see a temple. We, what? No, you're not. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So it's moving from the touchable to the invisible. For the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Jesus said when he's demanded the scribes and Pharisees, he said, we're looking for an observable kingdom. We're looking for the same kind of a kingdom that was in old covenant. Those were the shadows of the substance to show us a spiritual reality. So that when we come into Hebrews, the fourth chapter, we realize that the promised land in Hebrews 4 is not a piece of real estate any longer. That the promised land is rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ that there's a priesthood that's not after the order of Levi, it's Melchizedek priesthood. And that Abraham in chapter 11 was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God, but in Revelation, or not, not Revelation, Hebrews 11, that uh, Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. But in Hebrews chapter 12, he says, for you are come to Mount Zion and you've come to the city of the living God. So Abraham was looking for the city that you already are. See, this is a tale of two cities. One city was fading, another city was coming on the scene, but this one is not. See, they were looking for something that could be touched, handled, felt, smelled, and filled. Now, let me go on here and, and just bring some more details because we're, we're, we're getting short on time. It said, there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Now, this is to me what helped me really understand who the beast of Revelation was. Because if you look <coughs> at uh, uh, five had fallen uh, uh, of the lineage of, of Caesars, the first order of the emperors was Julius Caesar reigned from October of 49 B.C. to March of 44 B.C. Uh, after him arose the second one was Augustus who reigned from January of 27 B.C. to August of 14, BC, uh, August of 14 A.D. Uh, that was the one, when you read the Christmas story, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. That was the Caesar that was in power in Rome when Jesus was born. I could take you back also to Daniel 2 and tell you that he said, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom will not be left to other people. And if you read that in the Amplified Bible, it will tell you that the progression of the kings would be from the king of Babylon 
to Darius the Mede under the Medes and Persians, to Alexander the Great would be the third kingdom, and the fourth kingdom would be the kingdom of Rome. It is the kingdom of Rome that is now in power. And the line of the Julius Caesar lineage has now come to the second king was King Augustus, where they're on a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. The third king was Tiberius, and he reigned from August of 14 AD to March of 37 AD. The fourth king was Caligula, and he reigned from March of, uh, March, uh, of 37 AD to January of 41 AD. The fifth king was Claudius and he reigned from January uh, 41 A.D. to October of 54 A.D. Now they said five had fallen. So the five fallen kings were Julius Caesar, uh, and then Augustus, and then Tiberius, then Caligula, and then Claudius. Five had fallen. And he says, and one is. One is. The one who is was Nero. And Nero was the sixth in the lineage of kings. And it's interesting that his name means, has the numerical value of 666, and everything about Nero was beastly. And he reigned from October of 54 A.D. until June of 68 A.D. He said there was one, let me see if I can find it in my scriptures. It says, and there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is. The one that is would have been, fits the timetable, fits everything perfectly, would have been Nero. And the other is not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue short space. The one who was to come would be Galba. And Galba reigned only for, I believe it was, six months. And he reigned from 68 A.D. in June to January of 69 A.D., and he was murdered. Uh, Nero committed suicide. And then uh, uh, that became the year of, uh, that became the year, uh, actually, of, uh, of, the th of, of, of the four kings because this was the end. Let me just read from your notes. It makes it a whole lot easier and quicker. Uh, five kings had fallen, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius. Nero was now in power. The one not yet come was Galba, who continued a short space, and he reigned only six months. One of the major changes that must be noted was that Nero was officially the last of the Julio-Claudian line of emperors. Thus the line ended, and it would have seemed symbolically as if the head of the empire had been wounded to death. Nero's sudden death caused an event that has been historically called the Year of Four Emperors. Because of the tumult caused by his suicide, three short-lived emperors followed Nero. Many thought that the Roman Empire would not survive this transition, but here's the timeline. A.D. 69, the Year of the Four Emperors, was Nero, Galba, and then after him, Otho, O-T-H-O, who reigned for A.D. 69, and then Vitellius, A.D. 69, and then... Um, uh, the space in uh, 69 through 80, uh, A.D. was ruled by Vespasian, and Vespasian was the king who was in power when Titus finally leveled the cities. In what appeared to be a miraculous turnaround, the empire was revived under Vespasian and Titus. When they came into power, they established the Flavian line, or dynasty, the Flavian dynasty of Caesars, instead of the beast dying, it resurrected under Vespasian, and he ruled for a solid 10 years. The main reason the seven kings are mentioned is because the imperial persecution of Christians ceased after the Julio-Claudian line of emperors died. It was Nero and Caligula and some of those guys under that reign that persecuted Christians, but after that, they were the ones that also uh, that, 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 that made war with the Lamb, but the Lamb would ultimately overcome them. And the beast it was and is not, even he is of the eighth, goes into perdition. Uh, so we can see that those beasts were the ones that were in power. We can see that the seven mountains were the seven mountains upon which the uh, woman uh, sat. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings. 
which have not received, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive powers, kings, one hour with the beast. And Revelation 13, 1 also depicts the beast as having ten horns, which John says in Revelation 17, verse 12 through 13, there are ten kings who have not yet received power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are, all have one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. Some have thought these ten kings to be the very ones listed in the chart above. That's a possibility, but I think this is probably more of an accurate thing, since all ten of them reigned or had begun to reign in Vespasian's case before Jerusalem's destruction. However, John wrote that in his day they had not yet come to or receive royal power. So this view can kind of be eliminated if that's who it was. Uh, but another more likely view is that these ten kings, these ten kings were the rulers of the ten empirical senatorial provinces of Rome who were empowered by Nero to assist him in carrying out his campaign of persecution against the saints, which scripture refers to as the war on the Lamb, and the Lamb would make war with them. The global glossary on Greco-Roman world from Wikipedia says this, says there were ten senatorial provinces in ancient Rome. They were areas that were governed by the Roman pro-magistrates. There were ten senatorial provinces, eight of which were led by ex-printers, ex and two of which were led by ex-consuls. These ten, here is the list of them, the senatorial ten senatorial provinces as they existed in A.D. 14 are as follows. Achaia, A-C-H-A-E-A. -A. Number two would be Africa. Number three would be Asia. Number four would be Creta or Cyrene. Number five would be Cyprus. Number six would be Gallia, Narbonensis. Number seven, Hispania, B-A-E-T-I-C-A. -E number eight would be Macedonia. Number nine, Pontus et Bethania. And number ten would be Cilicia. Uh, one biblical mention of, Ro of a Roman provincial ruler is in Acts 18, 12 through 17, where we are told of, Gal of Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia in Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas had direct contact with the proconsul, Sergio Paulus, uh, in Acts 13, 7. And so all of that was literally, I got that from the Wikipedia, and so those are just the facts. But they gave their power. These hated the whore. The Romans and their if you will, just to put it in a nutshell, and their uh, contemporaries or their uh, uh, allies hated the whore. They attacked her, made her desolate, burned her with fire, stripped her naked. It was the end of an apostate Israel, and the great whore had been judged. I hope this has made sense. I want to give it to you in detail. Sometimes it gets boring getting into the details, but it's stuff that we need to know. Thank you for joining in. Thank you for supporting the ministry. We do need your help. Without you, we cannot do what we're doing. So when the Lord lays it on your heart, be faithful to respond to that. There's somebody standing by that can take your call for prayer or for gift if you'd like to give via credit card or debit card. Somebody standing by, or you can send it in the mail, and uh, we will appreciate it very deeply. God bless you for joining us this week. For anyone struggling to understand John's writings in Revelation, this book provides true, biblically-based answers. Through detailed insights into the letters John wrote to the seven churches of his day, you will learn how to avoid the mistakes of the early church to overcome today's trials and tribulations. This book will provoke you to thought and dialogue, bringing greater clarity and revelation of Jesus Christ.